1 John chapter 4, beginning there in verse 7, reading through the end of the chapter, John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me this morning as I seek to preach your word to your people. God, I pray that you would give me a passion for this text, that you would give me clarity in what I say, and that your name and your nature will be highly exalted this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray you may be seated. I've titled this morning's message, God is Love. God is Love. You know, there are, there are simple questions that we ask multiple times throughout the day, probably every day of our lives. We ask uh, these simple questions in some way, shape, or form, and we may not think too much about them, but these questions that we ask, they actually have a profound impact on our lives. We ask questions like, what is it? Or who is it? And the reason that these are such profound questions is because when we ask a question like, who is it? We ask a question like, what is it? We're actually asking an ontological question that deals with the very essence of something's being. And as a result, we'll respond to that in a particular way. Now, I know I just said a lot talking about ontological natures and things like that, so let me me give you a couple of examples to show you what I mean about how these questions, like what is it or who is it, can have such a profound impact on how we think and how we live. There are times, some of you are parents, and so you might relate to this story. There are times in the day, it happens quite frequently. I was telling Aaliyah I was going to use this example, and it happened two times after that because one of my daughters heard me using the example. 
But there will be times when my daughters will come up to me, grinning from ear to ear, and they've got their hand tucked behind their back, and they say something like, Daddy, I have a surprise for you. And I do what any wise parent should do. Rather than just stick my hand out, I say, what is it? Now, the reason I ask that question is because I want to know the status or condition of the thing that is in her hand. And depending on what is in her hand, I will respond in a particular way. There have been times where where I've said, what is it? And they said, I got you a treat. I got you a cookie. And so it makes me think about that cookie in a particular way because I know the essence of a cookie. I know the nature of a cookie. I know the taste of a cookie. And so it changes how I respond and I stick my hand out and I say, yes, please. But there have been times where there have been other things in their hand. I won't tell you what it is. I'm not trying to gross you out. But when they tell me what it is, I know the nature and the condition of the thing that is in their hand. And I respond accordingly, usually with, I don't want that. Give it to your mother. Let me give you another example. This may relate to many of you. Have you ever been sitting in your house, perhaps you're reading a book, you're watching a TV, watching TV, you just got off work, you're just chilling, right? You're in your house relaxing, and you're not expecting anybody, and a knock comes at your door. And what do you instinctively yell out? Who is it? And the reason that you yell that out is because depending on who is at the door, you will think about that person in a particular way and then respond to that person in a particular way. So perhaps it's someone at your door who you've been longing to see. You haven't been able to connect with them for a while. And so they say their name and immediately you think of them in a positive light. You get excited. And so that dictates how you respond, doesn't it? You hop up. You dust the crumbs off from the Cheetos you were eating, right? You run to the door. You open the door with a big smile on your face. Maybe you give them a big hug. I'm imagining this pre-COVID, okay? You give them a big hug. You're so excited to see them. But maybe it's that one family member, and we've all got them, that brother, that sister, that aunt, that uncle, that mother, that father, that cousin, that one person who when they say their name, you immediately think of them in a particular light. And as a result, you stand up and hide any evidence of the fact that you just got your paycheck. Is it just, just me? Okay. A couple people know what I'm talking about. You see, when we make a declaration about what something is or what someone is, we are making a claim that speaks to the very essence of something or someone's existence, and we will respond. So when we ask that question and answer it, what is it, who is it, the answer to that will dictate two things always in our life. It will dictate first how we think about that thing or person and two, how we respond to them. Now, here's why I say all of this, because John knows this to be true. And when he writes these verses that we just read, he knows this reality. And that's why he repeats this very significant phrase in both verse 8 and verse 16. It is so significant. It is the ground on which this text stands. And it is this statement that God is love. John is making a claim there about the very essence and nature of who God is. And this claim ought to have real implications for you and me. If we truly believe that God is love, it will change not only how we think, but it will change how we respond. Now, I'm, I want to be honest with you this morning. So I've, I've been fired up to preach this text. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because sometimes when I'm fired up to teach them, it doesn't go as well as I thought it. But this, this passage, this text has just had me kind of 
bubbling up all week. And as I studied this text, it has renewed in me and refreshed in me this vision for just how amazing our God is because God is love. And listen, I got, I've got my notes. I got, I got a bunch of notes in front of me and I want to pre- preach with, with clarity. But, but Pastor Lance, if it's all right with you, I kind of want to preach this text how I feel it this morning. Is that okay? I want to preach it how I feel it because there's just, there's just something about that statement that God is love that does something to you when you start to get it. Because two times in this text, at two points, John grounds what he's saying in this idea that God is love. And I want you to hear me that in those three simple words are the entire breadth of Christian theology. God is love. Because listen, when you break those three words down, it tells you something. Those three words. So first, take that word God. The one of whom John speaks is God. This is the God that opened his mouth in the planet's form. This is the God who with his strong hand flung the stars into the sky. This is the God who in his very nostrils contained the breath of life. This is the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. This is the God who made a promise to Abraham and came through. This is the God who delivered his people from Pharaoh's grip. This is the God who showed up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. This is a God who can shake the earth or reveal himself in a whisper. This is the God who at the mere sight of his robe, people have been undone. This is the God of whom the angelic beings never cease to cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the earth is full of his glory. This is the God of covenant, faithful and true. This is the God mighty in battle, always victorious. This is the God who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the God of Genesis through Revelation. And the word of God declares to us there is no other God but this God. What I'm trying to tell you is you ain't never met anybody like him. God, the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign, good, gracious, righteous, ruler of all eternity. It's that God. And as much as I just said about him, I didn't say enough. This is the God of whom John is speaking. And as good as that first word is, the second word is, I think, even better. Is. God is is and oh church the weight of those two letter those that two letter word in the english it's four in the greek but these letters is we don't think about it right we read past it yep god is love but is in that statement there's so much theology because listen to me is that two letter word is a dialectal present tense and first and third person singular of the word to be and so when john says that god is He is making an ontological claim about the very essence and nature and being of our God. Because if God is something, it means that God is real. Now, why is that important to you and me? Because those two letters declare to us that God is not merely a figment of our imagination. Our God is not a fairy tale for moral goodness to make our lives look a little better. Our God is not a therapeutic response to the chaos of this world. Our God is not something that we made up to help us sleep at night. No, our God has an essence. He has a being. He has a very nature. He exists and he is real. But I want you to see this. Not only is the word is a declaration that God is real, it is a declaration that he has revealed. Because the only way that John can make a claim about the very nature of God is if God has made himself known. I want to tell you this morning that our God has made himself known. Our God wants to be known. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know 
that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. The implication of that is that God can be found. That God is near. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. You see, not only does the Lord want to be known, but he invites us to know him all because God is. So John's building a case here, all right? He's building a case. He acknowledges who he is talking about. He is talking about the sovereign God of all creation who rules and super rules with perfect, with perfect decision making. He never makes a mistake. But he also recognizes the reality that God is. He is real. He exists. He has a being and an, and an essence and a nature. But that le leads us to the question of, but what is it? What is the essence? What is the being? What is the nature that John wants us to understand about God? Well, it comes in the final word of the three words. God is love. Now I want you to notice what John does not say there. He does not say that God loves. He does not say that God produces love. He does not say that God acts lovingly. And while all of those things are true, amen, he says that God is love. He is making a claim that goes beyond the mere actions of God, and it encompasses not only what he does, because yes, God shows love. God loves people. God has made his love known. But John's claim goes to explain the very source, the very essence of where his loving actions flow from. It flows out of himself because he is love. Love is not only a part of God's actions, but it is a part of his very existence. He is love. And so any act of love flows out of his very being and very nature. It's who he is. God shows love because God is love. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. The story of Scripture is one of a God who loves. The story of Scripture is of a God who is love. Let me try to show it to you. You know, we see it when you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In one of the first acts of God after Adam and Eve rebelled against him. You all know the story. Adam and Eve were walking in fellowship with God. They knew that God is love. Because they, they were with him. They sensed it. And we don't know how long they walked with God before the fall occurred. We don't know. Maybe it was a week. Maybe it was... 10 years, maybe it was 20 years, but at some point, Satan shows up on the scene, and do you know what he does? He attacks the very essence and nature of God, because in essence, what he says is, oh, is God really good? Is he good? Is he really loving? God's not good. God is not love. God is selfish. God doesn't want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. That's why he set these things out of bounds for you. But if you want to be like God, you go ahead and be God. You take that fruit and you eat it. And we know how the story goes. They bought in. They ate the fruit. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And listen to me. Don't miss the weight of that. In that moment, they felt what we have all felt. They felt naked. They felt ashamed. 
They were embarrassed. They felt the weight of condemnation all because of their rebellion. They knew what they had done, and now for the first time, they knew what they were. You ever been there? You have. You might have forgotten because there was a point when we didn't know what we know. There was a point when we hadn't tasted the love we have now tasted. We have all felt that nakedness and that shame and that embarrassment and that condemnation. But what did God do in the garden? He took another life. He takes an animal and from its skin he weaves together a garment to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness, to cover their condemnation, to cover their embarrassment. And with that single act of love, God is declaring what it will take to cover our sin and our shame is the robe of another. Okay, y'all looking at me like I didn't just say something. So let me try one more time. You know, this week I was reflecting on another passage of Scripture. The Holy Spirit honestly kind of revealed to me something amazing about it that I'd not really seen before. I love when the Holy Spirit does that, right? Side note, you read that same story in the Bible that you've read over and over and over, and it's like a new light bulb goes off, and you go, how did I miss that? That's amazing. Well, that's what was happening to me as I was studying a passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that a lot of us have heard about. We might know about it, but it's Exodus chapter 32. Do you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 32? No? Okay, I got a couple of no's. Good. So I'm going to wait for you to respond if I ask you a question. Amen? Okay. So we'll try again. Do you, do you remember what happened in Exodus 32? Okay, then let me remind you what happened. It's okay. I didn't either until I got there and it said Exodus chapter 32. So let me tell you what has just taken place before this, okay? In Exodus chapter 32, it, it comes after God has done some pretty incredible stuff with Israel and Egypt. God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. He led them as a cloud by day, a fire by night. He was with them. He proved his faithfulness. They come to the Red Sea. They look at the Red Sea, and they forget that God has been leading them as a cloud by day and a fire by night, and they say, oh, we're doomed. And God, the sovereign creator of all the universe, says, hold on, y'all, I got this, and he parts the Red Sea. Amen. I mean, that's incredible. He parts the Red Sea, and as people walk across on dry land, they make it to the other side, but Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit, right? We know this story. So Pharaoh's army goes after them. They think that this sea is going to stay part, and what does God do? He simply closes the water. He closes the water, and their life is over. Well, they've been kind of out in the wilderness for a minute, and then we come to Exodus 32, and at Exodus 32, God has just invited Moses to come meet him on a mountain called Sinai. And so Moses is up on this mountain. He's been there for a minute, okay? And what's happening is God is giving him the law. God is revealing to him the covenant stipulations of living in this covenant. Yes, God will be the God of Israel, but Israel has to play their part. And so God is laying out for them what is best, what is right, and what is good. And so they're up on this mountain. But something happens in the camp of Israel. They say, the people say, listen, Moses has been gone for a while. He's been gone. So what we need to do is make our own God. And they go to Aaron. You remember that? And they say, Aaron, listen, Moses, we don't know where he is. I mean, he said he's up on that mountain, but we don't know if he got eaten by something. We don't know if he's coming back. We need a God. We need a God. Will you make us a God? And Aaron thinks about it for a minute. And in his his wisest earthly wisdom, he says, I got it. Go around to all the women and pull the gold earrings out of their ears. That's what it says in the text. Go, go collect them all, and I'll use those to fashion a God. He says, I will make a God out of gold. Now, can we just pause there and talk about how nonsensical that statement is? I will make a God. 
I will craft a God with my own hands. I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that I can make and destroy with my own hands. I don't want a God that if there's too much salt in the air, that it will tarnish and fade and break. I don't want a God that if the wind blows too hard, it will. I don't want a God I got to pick up when it falls down. I want a God that will pick me up when I fall down. But they decide they want to craft for themselves a God. So Aaron takes his hammer and he beats this gold. He refines it in the fire. He molds it. He makes it. And out comes this golden calf. And you know what those idiots do? They bow down and worship it. They worship a God that they have made with their own hands. I'm not sure I'm talking about Israel anymore. But anyway, Moses is up on that mountain. That's where he is. And he's talking with God. And in Moses' mind, I mean, there's probably some, some trepidation. He's in the presence of God. This isn't like a fluffy meeting, but he's, he's in the presence of God. There's got to be this sense of awe. And in the middle of the conversation, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 32, God stops and says, let me pause for a minute, Moses. Do you know what's going on down there? Because that's the amazing thing about our God. He can be everywhere at one time. So while he's talking with Moses, he's watching his children. He says, you know what's going on down there? Those fools just crafted a God out of gold, and they're down there worshiping. And God says something petrifying to Moses. He says, you know what, Moses? I'm done. Leave me. He says, so I can burn in my anger and destroy them. Now Moses, whew, that man, he looks at God and he says, hold on a second, God. Hold on. Humbly, if I may. Hold on. Uh, do you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you remember that you made a promise to them? That you would be their God and that you would bless them with all of these offspring? Uh, God, how is that going to happen if you kill them all right now? And do you know what the text says in Exodus chapter 32? That God relented. Some have translated as God changed his mind. In the Hebrew, you could literally translate it as if God had compassion. You know, and this is kind of where the new light came in. Because we typically hear that story, and when most people preach that text, they get caught up on the fact that God relented. You don't believe me? There are books upon books trying to dissect what it means that a God who never changes changed his mind. There are articles and blog posts. Just go home and Google Exodus 32 and watch all the stuff that comes up. And we focus so much on the fact that he has changed his mind, but as the Hebrew translates, it just means he had compassion, as if that's a concept hard for us to grasp because Jesus showed compassion over and over in his ministry. And is he not God in flesh? But regardless of that, we get so caught up on this issue, and I think we've missed the whole point of that interaction. Perhaps we're just like Israel and we miss the big picture. Because I have to imagine sometimes in my sanctified imagination, I really do, God sitting on his throne in eternity on high with his feet propped up on earth saying, you guys keep missing this. God says, I did not have Moses write this down in Exodus 32 so you could spend your time dissecting what it means that I relented or that I had compassion. The purpose wasn't get to give you a theology of whether or not my, your prayers sway my heart. The purpose, the reason I orchestrated this whole encounter, the reason I allowed this situation, the reason I even allowed them to have gold in their ears to make for themselves this idol was because I was trying to teach you something. 
I was trying to show you something. I was trying to teach you that the only thing that will stay my righteous hand of judgment that you rightly deserve is a mediator who will stand in the gap between a rebellious people and a holy God and plead your case. Is that not what Moses did? One who will stand in the gap and reach low, but at the same time can speak on high. And God is telling you that he will provide a mediator. Okay, now we're getting there, but some of y'all are still staring at me like that shouldn't cause you to shout hallelujah. So let me give you one more. and Let me just go back to the book of 1 John. Because immediately in verse 8, after John makes this claim that God is love. He says in verses 9 and 10, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son. His one and only son, the only begotten, the only one he had. Into the world so that we might live through him. And he says love consists in this, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. I'm going to be honest, some of y'all still looking at me like I didn't just tell you the greatest news in all of eternity. I want to say this to you because I love you. Let it never be said of us that we have gotten so comfortable with the gospel that it does not drive us to praise. Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all peoples, and shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why? Because our, our Lord is worth, worthy. Listen to me. Our problem will never be that we will worship too much. Our problem will never be that we clap our hands too much or that we shout too loud. Our problem will always be that we worship too little. And you might be looking at me and saying, well, Michael, you're fishing for an emotional response. You're right, I am. Because our worship is not just intellectual. It can't be or it's not worship. Our worship stirs our heart and makes something happen in our muscles and in our fingers where this hand meets this hand and we go like this. It raises something up inside of you that you just can't keep in and you have to shout hallelujah. God has saved. That God has redeemed. And here's the thing, and I'm just going to say it. I don't need you to understand my praise this morning. I don't need you to get my excitement and why I'm hopping and bouncing around up here. I don't even need you to participate because I came to praise God because the fact that God is love is not just some theological concept that I have come to grasp. It is a truth that I have experienced. It has changed my life because, listen, I know where I was. Help me, God. I know where I was. When God reached down and snatched me by my collar and said, sit your little rebellious self right here and I'm going to take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. I remember what the room looked like when God got me. And for the first time, my eyes were open and my ears could hear and I saw who God was and I saw love on display. And it's changed my life. And all I can do is praise don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the pit that God snatched you out of. God is love. That's not some idea that John wants us to write textbooks about. That's a concept that, that he, wants, he wants that to develop a shout in our souls. That God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. That because of him we might have life. God is love. And listen, John, John wants us not only to think correctly about God, because when you think correctly, it starts to do something inside of you. 
I told you I'm fired up, okay? Bear with me. John not only wants us to think correctly when we consider God, but remember, when the person knocks on the door and you say, who is it? When you receive the answer, you first think correctly and then you start to respond correctly. And I'm convinced that if we get this idea that God is love, we will not only think correctly, we will start to respond correctly. So what is the response? I'm going to try to work through this quickly because I just spent 30 minutes on three words and I said we were going to get through 15 verses. But John's going to begin to reveal to us what the appropriate response is. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God. And then look at verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. We must love one another. You see, our response to our God who is love is to be love ourselves. And listen to me, I chose those words very carefully. That our response to God who is love is to be love ourselves. Because I, I want you to think about this with me. If God is love and we are called to be like God, that's right, put the clothes on. If we are to obey and be his ambassadors who represent who he is and what he is like, then that means that our love has to go beyond merely doing loving things. Because our God is a God who is more than simply doing loving actions. He is a God who encompasses love in the core of his being. Because remember, God is love. And to some degree, this passage has really, it's really helped me think about even some of what we've preached before, because we've talked about love before, haven't we? It's come up in 1 John. And, and I'll be honest with you, even as I was preaching it, I was wrestling with the question of what is it that actually distinguishes our love from the love of the world? Because if we're honest, we know some people in this world who are, who, who do very loving things. They're kind people. And in fact, when you look at their love, there's a sense where because of God's common grace, you get somewhat of a glimpse of what God's love may be like, but they still don't know Jesus. They don't know the God who is love. So what distinguishes our love from their love? There are some loving lost people. Some of them more loving than me. That shouldn't be hard for y'all to believe. But you see, what distinguishes the Christian and their love from the lost world is that for the lost world, their love is merely an action. It's merely an action. But we are called not only to display love, but like our God, strive to be people whose very essence is being transformed by the love of God. And so what this reminds us of is that if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling to love like God, the right question to ask is not, what can I do to show more love? Which is the question I think a lot of us ask. The right question is, how can I be more transformed by God's love? How can I be more transformed by God's love? You know, one of the reasons that this is so significant is because the world will come to know the God who is love when his people reflect that love. 
You see, this is amazing. As we love, we are actually representing the God who is love on earth. Because look at what John says in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. Listen, let me read verse 11 and then verse 12. He says, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. That phrase that no one has ever seen God seems to just be thrown in there in the middle of a thought. At least how I read it. Because he's talking about, let us love. Let us be like God. And then he says, and this is how we'll remain in God. But right there in the middle, he just throws in this random statement that no one has ever seen God. Well, why does he do it? Well, because it actually fits perfectly with what he's trying to say. Is that no one has ever seen the God who is love. And you might be thinking, well, hold on a minute, Mike. I thought earlier in this morning when you were dancing around up there, you just said that God has revealed himself. He has, but no one has seen God. Because as Hebrews 1 tells us, God has revealed himself in various ways through, through prophets, through his word. In these latter days, he's revealed himself through Jesus. And now uh, on this side of the ascension, he reveals himself not only through the son, but through his other children as well. Because remember, we are called to be God's ambassadors. We represent who this God is, not just what he does, but who he is to a world that desperately needs to see him. So what that tells us is that the world may never see God, but they will see you. They will see you. What are you representing? Who do you look like? You see, as Christians, we are to be marked by our love. And not so that we will look better to the world. So that God will look glorious. See, our love for God and our love for people it's how we prove that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. It's the natural outworking of the fact that we have been redeemed. But John, John wants to make something crystal clear. He, he, wants, he wants to make sure there is no doubt. John is not saying that our love makes us be in Christ. John is not saying that we are children of God because of our love. See, John does not want people to think for a moment that they can love their way to God. But what John communicates is that our position with God is not a result of our love, but a result of his love for us because he has loved us, because he has called us. We love as a result of that. I mean, that's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we do as Christians is a result of what God has done. I want, you, I want you to know that's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want my standing with God to be based off of how well I perform. I don't want my standing with God to be based off of my actions and whether I've loved enough, whether I've been kind enough, whether I've worshipped enough because I've learned something about myself. I will always fall short, even as a Christian. I do not want my standing with God to be determined by how well I love because I will drop the ball. Some of y'all are like, mm-hmm, he has. He sure has. I'm sorry, I'll love you better. But you see, what John is trying to communicate is that you can rest, rest assured because you are united to God through Christ because he loves us. 
And we are in him, not because we are good, not because we have loved well enough, but because he has called us, he has saved us, and he has sealed us with his spirit. That's why he writes this in verse 13. He says, this is how we know that we remain in him and he is in us. He doesn't say because you love. He says, this is how we know that we remain in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit. That's how we know that we're in God. Because God has poured out his love and grace and mercy. As I was saying earlier, he's, he's taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And we've seen him as good. We've seen him as glorious. We've seen the majesty of the cross and the work of Jesus. And we have believed. And in that moment, he has given us his spirit. And his spirit is the guarantee that we remain with God. Not that we perform well enough. Praise God. So you see, our love is not what unites us to Christ, but it is a byproduct of the fact that we have been united to Christ. And so in some sense, that should give us a little bit of confidence. Because I know we can hear sermons like this and really start to think, man, I'm not that great at loving. I'm not that good at this. I struggle with this. I don't, I don't radiate that love like the Father does. Well, here's the good news. If the Spirit dwells within you, you have already conquered. We'll talk about that. Maybe, I think it's next week. I can't remember where it is. We talk about the victory that we already have. Which means that, yes, you might be struggling, but the Spirit has already overcome. You are perfect because of what Christ has done. Doesn't mean we don't strive for righteousness. I'm not saying that because we absolutely do. Positionally, though, we are righteous in the sight of God. We wear Christ's robes. He looks at us and he does not see your failure to love. He does not see your, your failure to be obedient. He sees Christ's righteousness. But that should motivate us then to practically put off more of the old self and put on more of the new man. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so this means that we can have confidence. And it means that our confidence is not ultimately in what we do. Our confidence is in a God who is love. Our confidence is not in our works. Our confidence is in Christ's work. And we have confidence that though we struggle, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Therefore, John reminds us this in verses 17 and 18. And in this, in what? In the fact that God is love. In the fact that we are in his love and we can love as a result of it. He says this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And what John is communicating is because our confidence is in Christ and what he has done and not in how well we perform, we need not fear the things of this world because we are safe in the arms of God. We need not fear when we stand before the holy king of eternity because we are safe in Christ because of his death and resurrection. What a freeing thing that when you die or when he comes back, you will stand before God and because he has loved you, you need not fear. All of this because God is love. Brothers and sisters, God loves you, and the least that we can do is declare this love to a broken and dying world. 
God's love for us should motivate us to be like him. And if you are struggling to love, the goal, hear me please, the goal is not to will yourself to be a more loving person and to do more loving things. The goal is to plant yourself daily in the love of God. Remind yourself of God's love. Remind yourself of the cross and the empty tomb. Preach it to yourself until you find yourself alone in your room by yourself clapping your hands and shouting for joy and watch as the Spirit moves and molds your heart to be more like the God who is love. So here's my call to you as I end this sermon. Remember that God is love. Remember that God is love. And we see that most clearly in the cross. That though we are just like Adam and Eve, and we believe the lie too, that God is not good, he is not for us, he does not have our best interest in mind, he's selfish, he wants to take, not give, and we rebelled against him, and we made ourselves God's enemy. Yet he still loves us. He promised the robe. He promised the mediator. He promised the redemption, and he delivered. Because 2,000 years ago, God in flesh showed up. His name was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he perfectly fulfilled God's law. He lived a life that we should have lived. He lived in our place, and then he died in our place. As an atoning sacrifice, I like how the ESV says it, as a propitiation for our sins, he stood in the gap. He hung between heaven and earth so that we might go to God through faith in what he has done. And this is all because God has loved us, not because we loved him. And in light of who God is and what he has done, love. Love the God who is love and has loved you and love those around you. And in this, you will find yourself living the true Christian life.